The Old Testament is a collection of 39 books written over 1,500 years. There are 600,000 words in that book. Almost 10 times as many words as are in the Quran. 75% of the English Bible is in the Old Testament. The New Testament is about one fourth the size. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. But there are, the books are much longer in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. But the Old Testament, if you have ever read it from the start to the finish, if you read it well, because not all reading is the same. Reading is a skill just like any other, and just like painters aren't the same, readers aren't the same. If you've read the, New, the Old Testament well, then you should have caught two themes despair, sin, misery, poverty, destruction, judgment, grace, mercy, promise, revelation. God coming into time. And finally, in the greatest word, hope. If you didn't get those two streams, you didn't read the Old Testament well. So I'm going to labor this morning to go from Genesis to Malachi. And we're going to go book by book. And I'm going to summarize each book. So you might want to take your pen and write over the top of each book the theme of that book. I'll do it for 21 of the books, not all 39. And then at the end of the Old Testament, I'm going to give you a theme for the whole Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you today that I don't know of a better way to prepare for Christmas than to read the whole Old Testament. But if that's a lot, 600,000 words, then let's at least take 45 minutes. To think about this 600,000 words. What is in the Old Testament? Well, I'll start with Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. It starts with God. I'm going to do systematic theology this morning, which means I'm going to grab verses from all over the Bible as we run through. A chronological story in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there was nothing else, no angels, no earth, no stars, no heaven. It was God. And the Father enjoyed the Son, and the Son enjoyed the Spirit, and the Spirit enjoyed the Father. They all mutually Communicated one to another and loved and adored one another. They were an overflowing fountain where one took pleasure in the other. They had no needs. God did not create the world because he was needy or lonely. He was a great God outside of time who said, My glory and beauty are so powerful and so overwhelmingly magnificent that the only right thing to do is to create a world where all the angels and all the plant life and all the rocks and all the seas and all the humans who will bear my image adore 
my goodness in one way or another. And so Genesis 1 is a God-centered chapter. 31 times it says God, and then there's an action verb. God said, God made, God did, God came, God created. God did this in six days. He made the world. All the beauty that you see. Go through and count the colors. Look at the birds and the stars. From small things to big things. That beauty and perfection reflected the character of God. 29 books of the Bible talk about God creating the world. From the Old Testament to the book of Revelation. God wants us to think of him as a creator. The first thing on the first page that he tells us. Wisdom, power, beauty, and get this. Let us not miss this from the beginning. From page one of the Bible. Here it is in big letters. Authority. Jehovah is the authority. And the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see a story of this. Okay, let, let me just put it on the board for you. Autonomy. Autonomy. Auto. Self. Namos. Law. The rest of the Old Testament, what we're about to see is autonomy. In every turn and in every way, from marriage to government to religion, we're going to see man saying, I am the law. I am the authority. But page one of the Bible says there's one authority and his name's not Dave or Seth or Ben. That's the great message from the beginning. You're going to see it all the way through. God is the authority But man, where did that come from? How can we explain if God's so beautiful and so glorious and he made it perfect? How can we explain this? Because in Genesis chapter 3, God permitted into a beautiful world that had no thorns, no disease, no death, no divorce, no murder, no corruption. Paul tells us that the woman was deceived. And the man knowingly obeyed. So who is worse? The one who had a bad head or the one who had a bad heart? Who would you rather be your neighbor? Someone with a bad head or someone with a bad heart? They fell. And from that fall, Genesis chapter 3 says, the whole world was cursed. The serpent was cursed. Satan, Genesis, Revelation 12 tells us that Satan had come into the serpent. And God says, one day I will put my foot on the head of that serpent and crush him. And then the curse comes to the woman. Woman, when you give birth, it's going to be painful. And your desire will be to your husband, but he will rule over you. Then the curse to the man. Man, in sorrow will you labor. In the sweat of your face, you will try to earn your living. It's going to be hard to get money. If we have what's called discretionary funds, that is unusual in the history of the world. Most people in the history of the world have struggled just to get their daily bread. 
Which is why Jesus tells us, pray to your Father that He would give you your daily bread. What your soul and your body need for every day. Because most of us didn't have a cooler chest. In the history of the world. And so that's where it comes from. Now the world spirals out of control. We're in Genesis 3, but go to Genesis 4. Fratricide. Fraternity. Brothers. Fratricide is when one brother kills another. How can that happen? The home should be the place of the greatest joy. Instead, it's the place of the greatest sorrow. Brother kills brother. Eve looks out at her two children, whom she dearly loves. And what do you do now, Eve? Should you kill Cain? Just killed Abel? Shortly after that, Lamech takes more than one wife, even though he was told one man... And one woman will cleave together and be one flesh. Lamech says, no, I want power again. And multiple wives show that I have power over people. I have virility and strength. So Lamech in Genesis 4 verse 23 takes more than one wife. But God's word comes true in Genesis 5. It says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. As if God's reminding us, like you sing the chorus of a song. God says, here's the chorus you're going to sing over and over. If you follow autonomy, and he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis chapter 6 to 9, the flood comes in. And maybe you've seen cutesy pictures where a beautiful little ark is painted with giraffes sticking their head out. This was a judgment from God. The old painter Hieronymus Bosch paints a picture in in gray scale with the ark lifted up. And underneath it are these mountains and the rains are falling down and people are banging on the sides of the ark as their doom is sure. That's what happened. God poured out judgment on the earth. But even in that, there's mercy because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When Noah comes out on the other side of the ark, in Genesis chapter 9, the longest speech in recorded history to that point. God gives revelation. That's kindness. He could have been quiet. He could have said, I'm not going to talk to you. But he does. He comes down and talks to man. He talks to Noah in Genesis 9. But Noah sins. Noah's children sin. Ham, one of Noah's sons, is cursed. And so God chooses one man. Because you might remember back in the Garden of Eden, he said, I will crush the serpent's head with the child of the woman. Well, in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham. That's the beginning of the Jewish people. From Genesis 12, if, if you just take your Bibles and hold between your fingers, Genesis 12 to Malachi... All of those pages, all of those pages right there are the history of the Jews. The story of what happens to Abraham and his children. And so in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He called Abraham and said, I want you to leave your land. I want you to go to another land. I'm going to show you that land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations will be blessed by you. What? In the midst of this sin spiraling out of control, God's going to bless all the nations? 
Yes. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham's the father of the Jews, or the Hebrews, or the Israelites. And for the next 39 chapters, in the book of Genesis, we see Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph. That's the rest of the book. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then you're done with Genesis. And what is the theme of Genesis? Here it is. The foundational truths of Christianity. If you want to write just a few words, maybe to understand, here it is, the foundational truths of Christianity. Starting with this, there is a God and he's not you. There it is, the foundation for the faith. During the time of Genesis, during Abraham's time, the book of Job was written. Why did God write Job at that point? It fits perfectly. I sometimes wish the Bible were chronological. And right at Genesis 15, there was a break and the book of Job was inserted. Why did he put it there? Why is it that God allowed Satan to come and do those terrible things to Job and let him suffer for months or even years? Why did that happen? Because God was showing us what happens in a world that rejects God. Suffering. Pain. But Job's a righteous man. What about his children? Suffering and pain is everywhere. And the purposes are known to God alone. And if Job says, why did you do this? God says to him, can you make the ostrich? Can you make the goat to jump on the mountains so that its foot's never, feet never slip? Can you make the great beasts in the ocean? Can you make the mighty animals? Can you make the snake He even says this in Job. Can you make the snake move? Can you tell me how the snake moves? I can. And I invented that kind of movement. Now this kind of thing is what God says to Job in his pain and in his suffering. Job is there so that we will know. Here's the theme of Job. Suffering exists. And so too does God. That's the theme of the book. Suffering exists. And so too does God. Well, after Genesis and after Job, we come to Exodus. 400 years passed between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. 400 years, just like that. What's happening? The children of Israel, the children of of Jacob, the children of Abraham have now grown into a great nation. There are hundreds of thousands of them. Millions of them. And they're in the land of Egypt. And a king rose up who did not know Joseph. And he began to make them slaves. They were slaves for 400 years, the New Testament tells us. Africans, no one has suffered. No group of people has suffered like the Israelites. So if you ever think, it's not fair. Look what colonization did to us. Just remember in the Bible, look what happened to the Jews. No nation has ever gone through the pain and difficulty in history that the Jews have gone through. And no nation has come back as many times. A few years ago, I was reading, I think it was 2012, that Israel had more startup entrepreneurs and franchises than any country per capita in the world. Why is that? Well, in the book of Exodus, they're slaves. But God sends a prophet. He sends Moses. 
He says to them, Moses, you can redeem my people. And so with these great miracles, the people of Israel see the miracles and they come out of Egypt with a powerful hand and they stand in front of an ocean and they can't get across. And God says, Moses, stretch out your rod. And when he stretches it out, an ocean or a, a great sea, a body of water separates. And they walk through on dry ground. And then he clouds the minds of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians will say, hey, if it's good for them, it'll be good for us. And they go through. And then the Bible says God takes off the wheels from their chariot and throws the walls of water down on them. That's the exodus. That's redemption. And all through the Bible, that's a picture of what's going to come. That hasn't happened to everyone on the earth. But someday... Someday it's going to come. And it came to you in June. And it's coming to you, Aruani. We're praying for you. That's the story. The first half of the book of Exodus is the history. How did they come out of Egypt? The second half of Exodus is the law. <clears throat> and what do these people do? As soon as they come out of Egypt, as soon as they cross the Red Sea... Within seven days, they're complaining. Did you ever read that? You should mark the calendar as you read the book of Exodus. They see God open the ocean. They walk through it. Within seven days, they're complaining. Are you like that? Does God do some great thing for you? Does he supply your need? Does he meet your need financially? Does he meet your need in your home or spiritually at your church? Does he give you some great token of kindness, and then within a week, you find yourself upset and discontent again. That's the story of the, of the world, isn't it? That's the story of my heart. That's the Jews. And so God gives them laws. He says in Exodus 21, the one who curses father or mother will be put to death. He says the death penalty for kidnapping, slavery, rape, homicide, witchcraft, and homosexuality. He gives laws on how to sacrifice For atonement, he gives laws on what things to eat. He gives laws about marriage, laws about taxes, laws about when to take a holiday and how to take it. So the second half of Exodus does that. And the rest of Leviticus gives those laws. The theme of Exodus, you can just write in one word, redemption. Redemption. Then we've got Leviticus. The theme of Leviticus is holiness. The word holiness is repeated over and over. And the laws are given for atonement. The first seven chapters of the book tell what to do when you sin. Bella was telling me this morning, I'm reading Leviticus and it's difficult. When you read Leviticus, this is what you should be thinking. Thank God. Thank God I was born when I was born. Because atonement now is in Christ. Atonement then was looking to Christ Through all of these pictures. Read Leviticus and think every chapter, every verse. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the birthday you gave me. Leviticus, holiness. Then Numbers. Now we go from Numbers and to talk about the journey. Numbers is history. People think, oh, Numbers is boring. It's all about how many people lived in each tribe. No, it's just a few chapters. Most of the book of Numbers is history, exciting stories and interesting stories about how they traveled. They send spies into the land, but the spies doubted God's goodness. 
So that entire generation had to wait for 40 years in the wilderness. The theme of Numbers is the path to the promised land. That's the theme of Numbers. The journey to find God's promise. Then comes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Look up here. Nami. What does Nami mean? From the Greek word? Law. Namos. Deutero namos. What's deutero? Can anyone guess? Deutero? Two. Second. The second law. Deuteronomy is a repetition because remember it's 40 years later. They gave the law at Exodus, but now 40 years have happened. Don't you think it's time to, to hear a second sermon after 40 years? The book of Deuteronomy is broken into sermons. Moses probably gave them over the space of three to six months. Preaching them, reading the law, and then preaching to the people. And they're recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. There's very little history. It's mainly a repetition of Exodus specifically. And expounding on Exodus. Why do we have to have the law a second time? Because people are forgetful. And notice that when you read Deuteronomy, he says all the time, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. I'm telling you because you're going to forget It's interesting, in the book of Judges, which we'll get to just now, there's a lengthy section where God condemns the people of Israel for the sin of forgetting. It's a terrible sin to forget God's goodness and God's law. Deuteronomy warns us, an entire book of the Bible, and here's the theme, remember God's law. Don't forget Forgetfulness is not just an accident. It's a sin when it comes to God. But throughout the law, there's, remember, this this blending. Cursings and blessings. Cursings and blessings. Because in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses says, I will raise up a prophet, speaking for Jehovah, I will raise up a prophet from among your myths who will be a true and a perfect prophet. He's the one who's going to crush the serpent. He's the one who's the Passover lamb back when they came out of Egypt. There's the promise. Remember God's law. So these books of the law are filled with stories of God's chosen people. They break the law of God almost as soon as God gives the law. Remember, when Moses comes down from the, from the Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, what does he find the children of Israel doing? Worshipping at a golden calf. The day he comes down with the law constant falling into sin and so the theme of these first five books God saves them with miracles and grace they sin God gives them his laws they make a golden calf moving on to Joshua and Judges now Moses has died and Joshua stands up Joshua has to conquer the land Conquer the land. That's Joshua. The theme of Joshua is faithful while fighting. Faithfulness while fighting or faithful while fighting. And even Joshua reminds them, don't forget. And at the very end of the book, in the most famous verse in the book, Joshua 24, 15. 
And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites, which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Canaanites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the next verses say, And the elders of Israel remembered the words of the Lord all the days of the life of Joshua. They remembered as long as Joshua lived, when Joshua died, the book of Judges. We have 350 years. And friends, the book of Joshua and Judges takes almost as long as the books of 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. We're going to get to them just now. Those books take 510 years. Joshua to Judges takes about 400 years. Joshua and Judges, you think, oh, it's just this small thing. Yeah, but time-wise, time-wise, Joshua to Judges is taking as much time as 1 Samuel, almost as much, about 100 years less, as from 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. And so we have Judges. For 350 years, God gives them Judges. Do you see what happens? Every time they fall into sin, God sends them Moses as a prophet. God sends them laws. God sends them judges. Soon he's going to send them kings. Every way they turn, he sends them something to help them. For 350 years, there's a cycle. Sin. Judgment. Repentance. Salvation. Sin. Judgment, repentance, salvation. It's right up here. It's on the board. They are autonomous. They have their own laws. And that's the theme of the book of Judges. Every man wants to be his own boss. Autonomy. Every man says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. It's the last verse of the book. And many commentators bring that out as the key verse of the whole book. They say, look to the very last word of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. That little book of Ruth. Ruth happens right then. I'm not going to skip it, ladies. We can't skip Ruth. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's a wonderful story because Ruth has very little of the sin in it. It, All the sin in Ruth is in chapter 1. When Ruth's husband and Ruth's father-in-law die. And then after the father-in-law die, then Ruth is a Moabite. And she's trying to be faithful where she's at. And God looks down and has mercy on her. And the theme of Ruth is this. God guides history through individuals. God guides history through individuals. In one sense, you are just part of the human race. Don't think much of yourself, men. Men are so prone to pride. We think we're so great. We think we're the most important person at work. We don't tell anyone, except our wives sometimes. We think we're the most important person at work. We're not really. That's the story of of these big books. But the story of Ruth is on the other side. To balance it, every individual person matters. God even cares about a poor widow from Moab. God even cares about her. He remembers her. And he goes right into that pagan nation where they worship wicked gods. The gods of Moab sacrifice their children to idols. That's the culture that Ruth grew up in. And when Ruth saw Naomi's culture, she said, your God will be my God. Where you go, I go. I've seen Moab's life and I've seen your life. 
I want to get out of that. God has mercy on her. One commentator said, big doors swing on little hinges. That's the book of Ruth. God's sovereignty and his providence works through individuals. And so after that, we have 1 Samuel. The prophet Samuel receives the word of God after hundreds of years of silence. Do you realize that when Samuel hears the word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the Bible says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Precious means rare if you have the old English. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was not common. And then the Bible came or God came and spoke to Samuel. The word of the Lord was uncommon, but God finally spoke after hundreds of years of silence. And what did he say to Samuel? He says, go judge the nation. And then they choose a king. They said, we want to be like the other nations. Make us like the other nations. We want to be like them. See, the world wants this. What do they want? God said, I'm your king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Samuel is angry at the people. And God says, don't be angry. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. See this? That's the story the whole way through. Autonomy. I'm the king. I'm the boss. I can do things. Step back and let the world see who I am. That's what Israel says. Give us a king so that we'll be like the other nations. God said, didn't you read Leviticus? You're not supposed to be like the other nations. You're supposed to be different and holy and separate and unique. They said, make us like the other nations. So God says to them, well, then tell them what it's going to be like. Tell them what's going to happen. If they have a king, he's going to tax them and they're going to cry out because the taxes are so great. And so the first king fails. Saul was handsome and popular. He was powerful, came from a good home. But he was not a man of character. So God chooses a man of character. David, a man of faith and character, integrity. Most of the Psalms were written during David's life. 75 of them, the Bible tells us, were written by David. 30 some were written by Asaph, a contemporary of David. And for the last 30 or so, they don't have names. Well, some of them don't have, most of them don't have names. They may have been written by David as well. Most of the Psalms were written during David's life, right in this period of the kings. What's the theme of the book of Psalms? Here it is. The affections of a godly man. If you were a godly man and you felt like you should feel, what would you look like, Psalms? If you were a good man, a faithful man, a godly Christian, what would your heart feel like, Psalms? David is a good man. 58 chapters of the Bible are dedicated to David's life. And yet, if you read those 58 chapters, there's at least four times when he sins in an important and serious way. Four times he sins. And we remember him for David and Bathsheba. So his son Solomon comes along and Solomon turns to other gods after he writes these three amazing books of wisdom. And scholars believe, and I think they're right, that probably the book of Song of Solomon was written first when he was young and excited about his new bride. And then Proverbs when he has children. 
And now he says, my son, my son, 31 times. My son, hear me. And then the book of Ecclesiastes, when he's an old man and he's cynical and he looks back on his life and he realizes the first 30 years I did good. You know what? The last 40 years I've blown it. He looks back on his life and he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme of Proverbs is skill for living. Or, a little bit longer, skill for living in God's world. How can you live in God's world? Read the book of Proverbs. What's the theme of the Song of Solomon? Love in marriage. I find this wonderful. The Bible is such a practical, earthy book. It's right down here where we live. We think a lot about marriage and love. The Bible does too. There's a book about how to love people. There's a book about how to love your wife or your husband, Song of Solomon. And by the way, Song of Solomon is not entirely concerned with intimacy. If you'll notice the book of Song of Solomon, it is a series of speeches from one to the other. Song of Solomon, among other things, teaches us that good marriages have good communication, where the husband talks as well. I know many men don't want to talk. But Song of Solomon says the best marriages are a blend where husbands talk and then they listen. And wives talk and husbands listen. And it's mutual. It's an opening up until your souls and minds are blended. But of course, sin stops that. Sin says, men, you get one thing. You get a servant and you get pleasure. And tells women, you have no choice. Marriage is terrible. You can't make it through life and you can't get kids without marriage. Marriage is terrible. But Song of Solomon says, no, when you blend lives, it's wonderful. I think we should preach a sermon on the book of Song of Solomon. The theme of Ecclesiastes. There's one important word in this. I'm going to read this, the theme. There's one important word. Don't miss it. Ecclesiastes. A merely earthly life is pointless. The word merely is very important there. A merely earthly life is pointless. That's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. A life that is only focused on this life is pointless. A merely earthly life is pointless. You put all of your attention to this life, and you're going to find at the end that you wasted it all. You'll find like Voltaire, who died as a rich philosopher in France, saying on your deathbed, I die now abandoned of both God and man. Oh, Voltaire, you're famous. You've got money. Guess what you did with your money? You left it to people who are going to fight over it because they didn't even care about you. They just want your money. And yeah, you were influential, Voltaire. But what do you have now? He even admitted it on his deathbed. I am abandoned of both God and man. That's the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a philosopher in the modern era. Israel has 43 kings over 509 years, and most of them are evil. Most of them are evil. What do we learn from that? Here's the theme of 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Here's the theme of all that. You ready? Very simple. Government cannot save you. 
That's the theme. Government cannot save you. No king can save you. That's the point. Read those books. Every single one of them falls. If you want to go through book by book, here it is. 1 Samuel, story of Saul. 2 Samuel, story of David. 1 Kings, Solomon and Israel. 2 Kings, Israel. 1 Chronicles, David. 2 Chronicles, Judah. It really is a very logical arrangement. 1 Samuel is Saul. 2 Samuel is David. 1 Kings is Solomon and then Israel. 2 Kings is just the country of Israel. 1 Chronicles is David. 2 Chronicles is Judah. And what is the end of this history? What happens at the end? God raises up wicked, vile countries like Assyria to take his people captive. That sounds hopeless. That's the end. God raises up Babylon to put out the eyes of King Zedekiah and drag him in chains. And why did he put out his eyes? Because just before he did that, he killed his sons right in front of him. So that the last thing his eyes ever saw was the murder of his children. And then he's taken away into captivity. What a miserable picture. That's the end of this kingdom. Well, during that time, there have been prophets sent. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Most of the prophets were sent during this time. Twelve of them. There are 16 prophets in the Old Testament. Twelve of those 16 were sent during the kings. And the theme of all the prophets is this. God's judgment on sin. And his future promise of grace. Can you get that? That's the story of the Old Testament. God's anger at sin. And God's promise of future grace. So God's people are spiraling out of control into idolatry and then judgment. So now, where's the story at? All of God's people, Israel is taken into Assyria and Judah is taken into Babylon. What's going to happen now? In Ezra and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah, some scholars believe were meant to be written as one book. I, I don't know, but... We'll consider this one book today. Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of this godly scribe, Ezra, and this godly man, Nehemiah, who bring in three different returns people from Babylon back to Israel. And they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the wall, and they try to return to the worship of Jehovah. During this time, Daniel, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi are preaching. The theme of Daniel... God's kingdom rules all kingdoms. The theme of Daniel, God's kingdom rules all kingdoms. The theme of Zechariah, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that's the theme of Zechariah. The theme of Malachi, 
Rebels must turn or burn. The theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. Restoration of God's people. Now the world is still full of crime and terror, but at least Israel is back in its land. Because God promised that from Abraham all the nation would be blessed. How in the world will these promises come to pass? You've got this little group of people living in a country with no army, no central government, no king. Only some of the people have come back. They're scattered all around. They've had a thousand years to live and they're messing it up. And God promised, I'm going to bless the world through you. That's the time of Esther. That's the time of Esther when she's still living in Babylon and the king of Babylon holds a lottery. Have you ever heard of that? A lottery to take a wife. And he chooses Esther. How did that happen? Quiet, good girls from Jewish background don't get chosen in beauty pageant lotteries unless God's in control. Because all of the enemies of the Jews were rising up to destroy the children of Israel. And God put Esther as the queen to save the whole country. God's providence, grace, kindness. They're so happy in Esther chapter 9 that they start singing and dancing and giving gifts one to another. And they decide to have that feast Purim to this day. What's going to happen after that? For 400 years, this is very important, between the book of Malachi and Matthew, there is silence. For 400 years, no prophet, no word from God. I'd like to preach a sermon on the silent years, the page between Malachi and Matthew. Does your life feel like that? Does the world seem like that? We were talking just before we came. When is Jesus going to come? It seems like so long. That's what they felt like. They thought it's been hundreds and thousands of years since the promise came. When is this sin going to end? When is the murder and the wickedness and the crime? Asaph in Psalm 73 writes the psalm saying, The wicked prosper and the godly suffer. I can't stand this life. When is it going to end? He promised there's going to be a real prophet. He told David in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan came to David and said, there's coming a king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel and he'll rule forever. And all the people of Israel, where's the king? Where's the prophet? Where's the judge? hundred years go by. Grandparents get old. They tell their children the stories. And then at their funerals, their kids weep and they doubt, are the promises going to come true? And then the next generation and the next and the next. How many generations are there in 400 years? How many generations are there in 1400 years? The whole time the Jewish people have been wondering and all the nations of the world. And imagine what life was like if you were a child of a Moabite. Imagine what the life was like if you were the child of a Babylonian or a child of an Assyrian. Or the child of an African or a Chinese or an Indian at that point in life. It was miserable. Again, I've told you about this book many times. The History of the World by Susan Bauer. She's written three volumes, each about 800 pages. 
She has a whole volume that goes through the time period I'm talking right now. About 5% of the people were rich and wealthy at the top. About 90-95% of the people were poor and struggling. Eat meat once a week, once a month. No health care. Average life expectancy, 30 to 50 years old. If you get to see your grandkids, you're lucky. The whole world is suffering. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Look at O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's full. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. Death's dark shadows put to flight. Make safe the way that leads on high. Show the path that brings us nigh. Because the world was full of misery and despair with this tiny thread of hope. These promises the whole way through. And that's what I've come to tell you. The point of the sermon is right here. At Christmas, all that hope came to pass. Because God finally broke into history. He took the form of a man. All the promises began to come true. It's like it says in the great book, Lord of the Rings. At the very end, when all the pain is gone, and Sam opens his eyes after he's just marched through the terrors and of the flame and the fire and difficulty in Mordor. And as he come through all of this, what does he say? What? Are all the bad things going to come untrue? Christmas is the beginning of all the bad things starting to come untrue. It's the beginning of all those promises. It's the beginning of all the blessings. It starts in our hearts. Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people right now. And when he comes back, He's going to set up a throne. He's going to rule the world with a perfect government. And then we'll see what a king should be. And then we'll see, now I see why David couldn't have saved us. Now I see why no government, no Bush or Obama or Trump or no Ramaphosa or no ANC or no ZANU-PF, no government can do this. It's not even Margaret Thatcher. We need God to come to earth and rule this place. And then it's going to be seen. And all of that starts with Christmas, which is why we learned last week it is the last time. Because Christmas started the last time. He's here. He's begun to fix it all. And right now, if we feel like we're in the silent years, I want you to cling to hope. What is it that makes you angry or discouraged or tired or frustrated? What is it that overwhelms you? What is it that makes you want to give up? Brothers and sisters, hold on to hope. Just like those people in the silent years. With no prophet and no written Bible at that time. Some scrolls that only certain priests had. Cling to hope. Remember 2 Peter 3? The scoffers will come in the last day saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue from the foundation of the world. See, they're doubting that Jesus will come back. They're doubting that it's all going to work out. And, and Peter tells us, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens being on fire shall melt. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein will be burnt up. It's going to happen. Let us hold to hope. If he came at Christmas, let Christmas mark the idea of hope in your mind. Cling to hope and grip it with both of your hands. 
It's a Christian virtue. That's Christian optimism. True faith and confidence that God who brought about Christmas out of all that mess will bring about the second coming and then the kingdom of God from all this difficulty. So if you read the Old Testament well, what message would you get? Here it is, the whole Old Testament. The world had a proven record of depravity. Even in the face of God's kindness when Christ came in the flesh. The message of the Old Testament is the wickedness of man and the promises of God all put together. May God grant that today we would think much of hope that God has promised through Christ. And let that carry you through Christmas. Come back tomorrow night for prayer and singing and scripture to rejoice in the hope that we have. There's not much hope in the world. There's not much hope in your own heart. There's not much hope in your husband or your wife or your kids. But look to Christ and there is great hope.